My money. Money. I get money from you. Money in the bank. Young money. Money, 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 money. It's a rich man's blood. I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. World-renowned financial advisor and best-selling author Barry James Dyke will arm you with the truth. This is The Economic Warrior. Please note, the opinions expressed on this show are of the individuals who speak them, and not necessarily of Portsmouth Community Radio, its members, or board of trustees. And good morning, everybody, or good afternoon, should we say. Uh, we're here in beautiful Portsmouth, New Hampshire. It's a cold winter's day, but... Uh, I have my uh, handsome uh, engineer, Bill Kleiger, who's That's here. Me. That's Phil. And uh, my sidekick, Will, Will Pierce. Uh, hello there, Will. Hey, how you doing? Oh, gee whiz. Hey. You, know, you know, Phil, that, that, that stool does work, doesn't it? It does. He made me sit in a stool. It made me sit in a stool. So we, uh, but in any event, so we have a great uh, guest today, Wade Fow, uh, who we're going to call in uh, California. And uh, he's one of the uh, experts on, on retirement issues in the United States and the He's a uh, professor of uh, finance and teaches the Ph.D. program on retirement at the American College. So we'll be talking to him before he gives a California speech. Uh, In any event, Wade, uh, you're one of the foremost experts on retirement planning in the United States. And thank you for for being our guest today. Well, thank you for having me on. It's a pleasure. Okay. Now, Wade, you have a very interesting background, okay, Um, uh, in in economics teaching. Um, You got your Ph.D., I guess, at, at Princeton and then mm-hmm. you went to, then you went to teach it in Japan. Why did you do that? Uh, yes, <laughs> that was a matter where, as I was going through graduate school for economics, my goal was always to become a U.S. government economist. And when I interviewed for those job positions, it seemed like all the government bureaucrats were very demoralized at the time. And I thought it'd be nice to try academics and try living in another country before I settled down in Washington, D.C. forever. And then that's just led to Japan becoming the best opportunity to to be able to pursue that direction. Okay, and you know, so you were there for about a decade. Am I correct? Mm-hmm. Okay, and um, now the thing is, is that um, now when you were over there, but you also studied various uh, pension systems, I guess, in Vietnam and in Thailand and Pakistan. And what did you learn about uh, other retirement? Because People are really worried, Wade, what's going on. And So did you anything you learned about benefit by studying them? Well, yeah. I mean, these demographic trends are universal in terms of people are having fewer children, people are living longer, and that's raising the cost to any sort of pension system in terms of the number of workers at any given time versus the number of beneficiaries at any given time. And as well, I kind of saw this lesson for the first time with Thailand, where their pension system was new and was looking very underfunded. They just were not collecting enough revenues to pay for the promised benefits. And then they just suddenly increased the benefits by a substantial degree. And I didn't understand why that was going on, but then came to later realize that governments and private companies, it's always much easier to promise future benefits than it is to increase current wages or or anything else of that nature. So it's kind of the pensions become this dumping ground and, and become unsustainable because of all that effort to try to just push it, the can, kick the can down the road, so to speak. 
So it sounds like they have kind of like the Illinois, the state of Illinois and Thailand. I mean, that just that doesn't I don't makes me feel warm and fuzzy. So they're kind of they're over promising and under funding. Is is that correct? Right, right. Over promising on the amount of benefits they'll be able to provide based on on the contributions they're collecting. So now, now this is why it's great to have you on, Wade. I never knew that. I mean. Um, it, now, what about the Japan? Now, Japan has the largest uh, pension fund system in, in the world. Um, are, are they any better than Thailand? Or uh, they do, and I, I hear a lot less about problems in Japan. That maybe they really have done a better job to try to link benefits to contributions, and they're not taking huge amounts of stock market risk or anything else. So I. It is the biggest pension, and as far as I know, there's not really the kind of crisis or danger that you hear about with other countries. Yeah. One of the things, and I've studied this, Wade, is the, um, and I think I may have sent you down my notes on that, the Japanese uh, Sovereign Wealth Fund or Pension Fund, whatever they call it, uh, is the largest retirement uh, pool of money in the world, uh, number two being Norway, and uh, number three, I think, is CalPERS, but uh uh, but they, uh, but they really don't get a lot of um, when the, um, the which I want to get into. I'm getting ahead of myself, but uh, the Japanese pension fund really doesn't get a lot of yield over on their on their pension because it's mostly Japanese bonds. Although, uh, is, am I, I think that the yield ten year yield weight is only like one point seven percent or something like that. Does that sound right to you? Yeah, they have been experiencing low interest rates for decades now, and that's right that. The Japanese government debt is huge, but a lot of that debt is just one government institution owning the debt of another government institution, and the, the pension fund's a big part of that. So now, so you you so you studied the pension funds like in, in Thailand. You see, they're kind of a mess. It kind of like it's we have they have their own Illinois and in, uh, in Thailand. And uh, so what? What made you get interested in the retirement uh, business? It's a relatively new field. Why did you say, I want to get, study economics, but retirement economics? Why How did you get into it? Mm-hmm. Well, it was a gradual transition, but I had done my dissertation in graduate school about, in the early 2000s, President Bush had the proposal to carve out and privatize a portion of Social Security. And so I was simulating how that might perform if you were investing that money in an individual account rather than in the Social Security program. And that's really the same skill set that I use today in terms of doing simulations about different retirement income strategies. So it was definitely a roundabout approach. But as I was thinking to move back to the U.S. and knowing that emerging market pension funds isn't a very marketable area for, for research in the U.S., I started to transition more. I studied for the CFA exam and came across some of the, the 4% rule of thumbs and different things through that that just then naturally started shifting my research in that direction as well. The, the first study I did was about would that 4% rule of thumb for retirement have worked in other countries? And I, I found that it didn't. And that was a case where I published that article very quickly. I got reader feedback, and that's very unusual for an academic who's used to just publishing in journals that end up sitting on library shelves collecting dust that no one ever reads. So when I found out people were actually reading that, 
I was very excited to make that transition into financial planning and retirement planning. Less great. And um, man, no, I, I, I have a sidekick, uh, Will Pierce. He has a question for you, Wade. Hang on one second here. Hi, hi, Wade. What's the four percent rule, and uh, how how do other countries uh, exceed it, or 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 not? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the the four percent rule. It's a rule of thumb developed by Bill Bingen out of California in the early nineteen nineties. That just said if he would he recommends retirees hold fifty to seventy five percent stocks, and that at your retirement date, if you take four percent of those assets. So like $40,000 out of a million dollars, you could keep spending at that level, adjusting your spending for inflation each year and not run out of money for at least 30 years. And that became a general rule of thumb around retirement spending that really, that sort of discussion for the most part is happening in the United States because in other countries, they're not so dependent upon stock market investments and individual like defined contribution pensions. So it's been a, a focus for the most part in the U.S., and that's what the investment world uses as a guideline about retirement income. Okay. What did your studies of the um, George Bush's proposal to put our Social Security money into the stock market uh, tell you? Well, the results I had were, were mixed, that the program could be made to work, but it wasn't as obviously superior as people were saying. It's kind of the same logic as the 4% rule that 4% will correct it. Like, if you assume the stock market's going to earn 8% every year, then it seems like eliminating Social Security and putting all that money in the stock market is a great idea. But in practice, things don't work out that way. The stock market is risky, and you can't assume a higher risk-adjusted return than the bond market can provide. So the plan could have been made to work, but it wasn't obviously as, as great as some of the advocates were saying. But then beyond that, I've realized more and more that we need defined benefit pensions, that when you make everything privatized, individuals are completely relying on the sequence of market returns they get with their their defined contribution plans, and it assumes they're going to save and everything else and make good investment decisions. And if they're not making those good decisions, then they're really going to be much better off with traditional Social Security, even if it doesn't offer that high of investment return, so to speak. Uh, Wade, uh, we're of like minds. We haven't met yet, but anyway, I think I sent you some of my research, and um, uh, thank you. Amen. Uh, we need guys like you to speak the truth on this. Now, one of the things, I don't know how much you've gotten this in your economics, but one of the things which I don't know if you saw the Commerce Department released um, the figures on the savings rate, uh, Wade, uh, this week, in which, which I was horrified. Um, the Commerce uh, said that the, the American public, uh, on a whole, only saves 2.4 percent of their uh, um, the, their, um, their their net savings rate, um, uh, which I was horrified um, um, because I know other countries are much much higher. Um, uh, is that? I mean, I think if, if people don't save, how are they going to retire anyhow? I mean, am I correct or I don't know? Right. Yeah, I think that's pretty consistent with. Generally, U.S. savings rates are so much lower. I, there was a Wall Street Journal article this week, too, about the the fact that the stock market's been going up and up, and then people are starting to get back into the mindset that they don't have to save anymore because investment growth is going to provide everything they need for <laughs> a happy retirement. 
It's, so it, it gets it, problematic that when, when the stock market's doing very well, people think they don't need to save anymore. Yeah, and that's so. I always tell people you got to save before you invest, you know. And uh, <laughs> even John Major Keys said, I don't know, 50 years ago, he says, markets can remain irrational longer than you can remain liquid. And uh, uh, I think it was Daniel Drew said, any man who doesn't buy stocks as an insider is like a man buying cows in the moonlight. Um, you know, you know, and and so, um, so, do you know what this? Now I know what was the say, but doesn't doesn't the Japanese have a very high savings rate? Am I correct? Uh, when you mm-hmm. yeah, the, a lot of East Asian countries are are famous for having much higher savings rates. Yeah, what do they save? You, and then you, they don't need the stock market as badly to meet their goals because they're they're saving instead. They can rely on their savings instead of investment returns. Yes. So yeah. So that's the. Uh, um, but in any event, so that's. So I. So I think as I don't know. Did they talk much about that? The American College about the 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 problem in savings. I'm just uh, curious. Do you guys talk about that stuff in academia? That is a popular topic in academia. I I don't get into that debate too much because it's already pretty well covered. There's. Boston College Center for Retirement Research and then the Employee Benefit Retirement Institute have their dual conflicting methodologies about measuring the retirement crisis in the U.S. And they go at it. And I I just sort of focus instead on people who have been saving and who do have enough assets where having a discussion about something like the 4% rule is meaningful because... It means more than a thousand dollars of spending if you're looking at a typical kind of 401k balance. Okay. Okay. All right. So, all right. So the so who, Alicia Monell is, is she the behind that on the uh, B, uh, uh-huh. yeah. So uh, in, in the EB, Employee Benefits Research Institute. Yeah. Okay. So that's you know kind of the retirement. Um, now the field of re- what you're in now the field of retirement income planning is relatively new field. Am I correct? It is. Yeah, I kind of say that 2006 was the, the birth year because a, a lot of, a lot happened that year to say that now people are thinking about retirement income as different from traditional investment management and wealth management. And, um, but um, now, you, you know, well, you get to speak in the mic there. Yeah, how, how are they different? Uh, how are they different? <laughs> So the, the main idea is that retirees are going, there's a new set of risks that they face, and their lifestyle becomes more vulnerable to financial market downturns relative to pre-retirement, that uh, once you leave the labor force, you lose the flexibility of saving more, working longer. And then a really important thing is once you're retired, you have to take distributions from your assets. And that's a fundamentally different problem than most wealth managers are trying to solve, which is how do you maximize your wealth or how do you maximize your risk-adjusted returns? It's based on tools of modern portfolio theory that just their asset-only models. It's how do you grow your assets? And the retirement problem is fundamentally different because it's not how you grow your assets. It's how do you meet a spending goal for as long as you live? And then those distribution needs actually amplify the impact of investment volatility on the financial plan through sequence of returns risk. It's not just the average return your portfolio will get over a long period of time, 
But if you get bad market returns early on, that can dig a hole for the portfolio that's hard to recover from, even if the overall market recovers later on. And then you have longevity risk and the, the increasing risk of spending shocks for things like health care and long-term care, the impacts of ongoing inflation, and then also worries about cognitive decline are all kind of the new, the new risks or the amplified risks that you have to be more concerned with in retirement relative to pre-retirement. How, how much do they make you take out of a... Uh, um, out of your savings plans, well, it's, it's the IRS, it's the IRS table. It's the RMD yeah. required minimum distributions. Uh, well, and is it a percentage or? Yeah, it's, it's an actuarially determined based upon lifestyle, and I, I they're still pretty. Have they been pretty um, static? Uh, Wade, the RMD requirements. Uh, yeah, the R, So the RMD rules actually are, are fairly close to an efficiently academic retirement spending strategy because it's. Yeah, percentage of your account balance based on your age, it, it goes up as you get older because your remaining time horizon gets shorter. And they're relatively conservative because they assume no investment growth on the underlying assets in the effort to try to spend your IRA down over your remaining lifetime. Yeah, yeah. Now, um, the thing is, is that uh, we're going to have to take a little break, Wade, and we're going to have you on for the balance of the show, but... Uh, uh, the thing is, there's so many risks that which people um, um, are exposed to today, and um, I know what they are because I've written a couple of books too. But uh, what do you see is the greatest risk re- retirees are facing now? Um, and then, you know, I'd like to take more about uh, cognitive risk after the break. But uh, what do you see the greatest risk to the general population now, and, and creating income streams? Well, I, I think it's. A combination. Usually, I say longevity risk is the biggest risk, and that's just not knowing how long the plan needs to last, because people are living longer and longer, and the more years you have to fund, the more expensive it becomes. And with those longer retirements, then you also have to worry about the mar- market risk and the sequence of returns risk, and how do you manage that joint longevity risk and market risk becomes one of the underlying issues. Do you try to manage that through investments and stock market growth, or do you try to manage that by pooling that risk? And that's really at the heart of the, the matter. So the, the risk, okay, and um, we, we got a bunch of questions here, but um, and I hope you can back me up on this. One of the things which I see, and I'm a little bit older now than you are, Wade, is, is that we have this, as we get older, we have uh, our, um, you know, I'm really sharp right now, but as we get older, we have uh, our ability to make financial decisions really gets weakened. Am I correct? They call it cognitive risk. Do you know anything more about that? You know, our inability to make financial decisions? Yeah, yeah. So one of my colleagues at the American College did a study on providing a test to people of different ages on financial literacy questions. And they did a lot of work to make sure it wasn't biased in terms of asking about financial tools that only certain generations of people would know about or that sort of thing. And they just found that as you age, your ability, your financial literacy, your ability to do basic financial calculations declines, whereas your confidence about your decision-making might even slightly increase. You might get more confident at the same time that your abilities actually decrease. And it's just questions like, what number is bigger, 1 over 100 or 1 over 1,000? 
And as people age, they have a harder time answering those types of questions. So it makes it hard to to manage a sophisticated financial strategy in that case. Do they also become more trusting as, as they uh, get older? I'm sorry, I couldn't I, I'm that. sorry. Do they, do they become more trusting or, or, or rosy? They look, through the, look at the world through uh, rose-colored glasses. Are they more likely to trust? Oh. Uh, yeah, that's, that's a good question. I, there's definitely an element of older people are targeted more by fraud and theft. And whether that's due to increasing trust or just declining cognitive ability or just they're more of a target because criminals think they'll have an easier time with having success with such groups. It, all those factors are probably playing a role. Okay. All right. Um, now, moving on, Wade, I just have a, a couple of just questions because um, I read somewhere that uh, the millennials— um, uh, actually, some of these actually uh, the younger generation expects returns of sixteen percent in the market, and they had one prospective client said she expected to get twenty percent in the market, which I know is lunacy. Um, uh, but nevertheless, the the common wisdom now I don't know how the market's doing today, but it will keep going up and up and up. And uh, I studied enough uh, pension plans um, to realize that um, uh, the very high returns, even at seven, eight, nine percent re- return over very long period of time is very, very unrealistic. That's just my perspective. Uh, what does Wade Faust say on, on, on these high expectations? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's this recency bias where people look at what's happened in the markets recently and project that forward. So if markets are doing very good, they think it will last forever. And then if markets crash, they become worried that it's going to stay down forever or keep crashing forever. And that's a, a a basic human tendency that you really have to work to overcome to be a successful long-term investor. But I I do also think that those kind of lofty return assumptions are unrealistic because they're they're basically assuming you're going to get an average rate of return and that you're pretty much 100% stocks when you start talking about numbers like 8 or 9%. You have to account for the low interest rates today. You have to account for the impact of inflation and that that part of that investment return is just offsetting inflation so you don't get that full growth in, in practical terms. And then if you're paying fees and expenses on your investments, you have to take all that off as well. So I don't think it's a good idea to base financial plans on such lofty return assumptions. Yeah, I know. It's uh, I, I agree with you. Um, this is, I mean, I'm, I'm ultra conservative. You know, this is my personal. I tell people we're going to shoot for six to seven percent. That's our goal. But let's realistic. Financially yeah. conservative. Yeah, financially conservative. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, and you know, I and I use a a three percent withdrawal rate uh, wave. I don't know. Would would you recommend for for clients? But uh, or, or for in your planning, what do you? What does the American College recommend as withdrawal rate? Oh, well, we yeah we have the RICP designation for advisors, retirement income certified professional, and I help contribute a lot to that. So I, there's no official recommendation from the college, but okay. my research is discussed. And I what I come up with now is if you want to meet most of the assumptions behind the four percent rule, where you want that constant spending power yep. and you don't have the flexibility to reduce expenses, then three percent is much more realistic in terms of providing the type of safety mm-hmm. people would generally associate with a 4% withdrawal rate. Yeah. 
Why does the government force you to t- take out that money? Well, it's retirement money. Uh, it's never taxed. What if well, you don't need it? Oh, they they want to tax it? Tax it. As it comes out? Yeah, they let you delay paying taxes on it, and they want to make sure they can collect their tax money someday. Okay. <laughs> um, now, God bless you, Wade. Uh, uh, one of the things which I've came up to on my own, and uh, uh, people can you know, buy my books, and I've came up with kind of a— uh, um, a, a similar path is that I think the most efficient and the strongest retirement package is really a composite of um, or a integration of both uh, investments and insurance products to really to to give people the stability uh, they need. Uh, what do you say about that, uh, Dr. File? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I originally come more from the investments world, but as I started doing more and more research about simulating different retirement income strategies going back now to 2012. No matter how I looked at it or no matter how I approached it, it always came up that using risk pooling and and using insurance as part of the strategy is a lot more efficient than trying to rely on the investment portfolio for everything. So in practical terms, having a lot of your core retirement expenses covered with contractual protections and, and with insurance annuities is cheaper and more efficient than just leaving everything exposed to investments and and trying to manage the retirement just with distributions from an investment portfolio. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree with you more, uh, Wade. Uh, um, no, well, well, uh, Pierce here has a question for you. Okay, so the if you have your money in a, a stock portfolio, uh, you're going to be paying fees on that, but uh, for management fees, but. Do the insurance uh, products that you are, were talking about, um, you don't have to pay the, those management fees, right? Uh, yeah, there's an issue there versus uh, ongoing fees versus one-time expenses. And yeah. so annuities generally have a one-time expense. Yep. That's often you, the consumer doesn't see what that is. It's behind the scenes, and you have to reverse engineer to figure out what the expense was. But... Yeah, that's versus an investment manager will charge a smaller but ongoing and compounding fee. It doesn't take all that many years until like a 1% annual fee might catch up and exceed a one-time 7% fee. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I've, I figured it out, Wade, uh, you know, because you know, I do both this from a practical experience is that, uh, you know, if I'm an advisor, I just want to, I wouldn't want to have anything in annuities, but really... Uh, but, but but as a, as a as a moral issue, uh, you really want to have people. That contri- we want to transfer the risk, and I think, don't you think, uh, uh, transfer of risk is so important to people? I mean, I. Um, what do you think? Well, yeah, that's why transferring that risk and pulling that risk it's more efficient. It's I, I have my concerns about the four percent rule, but even within the logic of the four percent rule, you see how investments approaches the problem. There, they want you. You want your plan to work for 30 years, so you want your plan to work to age 95 if you're 65, which is well beyond life expectancy. And then you also want your plan to work even if you get bad market returns because it gets calibrated to the worst-case 30-year period in U.S. history. And I'm concerned this isn't conservative enough, but nonetheless, it's meant to be very conservative. And what that ultimately means is you have to earmark a lot more assets to meet your spending obligation than would be necessary because with insurance, the insurance company is able to pay you like you'll live approximately to your life expectancy, 
and that you'll get average bond returns. Whereas if you're doing this on your own with investments, you have to assume you'll live well beyond life expectancy, and you have to assume you're going to get bad market returns that may even be below what you could have gotten from the bond market. And you have all the upside potential with the investments, but you're really limiting yourself in terms of having to earmark much more assets to the retirement goal than is necessary if you use insurance instead for that purpose. Yeah. Now, the thing which I think I shared this with you and I, I pointed out to you, Wade, and I don't now I'm not in academia. I'm just an advisor and author, but um, um, I've researched the, the heck out of this. And what it amazed me, and I don't know if this is really, a, um, it's known in the academic space that major corporations, okay, are using annuities to offload pension risks. And I think the, the classic case, Wade, as you know, was General Motors. There are 29 billion purchases of annuities to transfer your pension, the pension risk in 2012. Then you go Verizon, and you go to British Airways, you go NCR, Bristol Myers Squibb, on and on and on and on and on. So uh, the uh, even now, now the funny thing about it, even Lehman Brothers, uh, wait, I don't know if you saw this, but Lehman Brothers, you know, which went bankrupt, and the, and the UK bought an annuity to to, uh, to run their own pension plan. Um, and the fact that the truth be known is that even the New York Times uh, in the last quarter of, uh, of uh, 2017 purchased a monster annuity for, I don't know, $250 million or whatever uh, to, uh, to transfer risk. Do, do people really know about this, Wade, or am, am, I, I, I'm just, am I just a crazy guy up here in New Hampshire? No, that's probably not all that well known, but it, it makes sense. Even And the fact that companies are doing that when they naturally have all that risk pooling within the company because they have so many participants in their pension plans, but their business is making some of their product. Their business is not managing longevity and investment risk. So it's natural that they would like to take that risk off their balance sheets and just have a, an insurance company that specializes in longevity and market risk management to to take over that risk so that those pensions will get paid yeah. without the company having to devote so much resources towards managing the pension fund on their own. Yeah, yeah. so the, and the irony of the whole thing is, you know, you know who sold the, the large annuity to General Motors? It was actually Morgan Stanley. So that's I just I find this ironies and... Um, and I guess, actually, it's the British. I don't know if um, I said it, the, the British actually use these strategies more than we do, uh, Wade, I guess. Um, um, but uh, that's the kind of thing. Um, now, hang on. It's here. So, so, so was a GE, was a, we were just talking about that before you, before you got on, Wade, about GE being in some financial trouble. Now, were they into the um, business of, uh, of annuities or or, or – uh, insurance. Uh, I I, th- I think I read that they were. Yeah, they, yeah it's so, a tr- big trouble for them. Mm. So so they they got their numbers wrong, and uh, that's why they're taking a. That's why they're having some problems. Is, was that right, Barry? Yeah. Well, I I don't know if Wade's familiar. You you Japan when this all happened. So uh, I know a little <laughs> bit more about this than Wade. So you because you were in Japan from two thousand three to thirteen. Wade, am I correct? Uh-huh. Okay. Yes, that's right. What do you think of their economic uh, stagnations over there? We well, keep on reading about it, but I'm I'm sure they're just humming along. 
They uh, uh-huh. well, yeah. Basically, the standard of living got to a very high level there, and then has just not continued to grow. So, on a day-to-day basis, when you're walking around, especially a city like Tokyo. It's not really clear that there's been long economic stagnation. <laughs> the, the the rural areas are hit harder as people move out of the countryside and into the cities, but you don't really see the stagnation on a day to day basis in in a big city in Japan. Oh, so did you live in Tokyo when you were there? Uh huh. Okay, so that's kind of like New York. I mean, it's just like. You, you know, you go to New York City and it's electric. You know, I love New York City, and you never think there's nothing going. On. It's going on all twelve cylinders, but you go up to upstate New York and uh, or rural areas, and it's, and it's hurting. Um, so I guess that uh, um, is is a um, a problem. Um, the um, how can people find out more about Wade Fow and what are you up to now? You know, you're doing the co- you're doing the American College thing, and so let's let's hear more about Wade. Well, well thank yeah. My personal website is retirementresearcher.com, all one word, and then I I have a weekly email list you could sign up for. And I've written two books now. I'm working the next book I'm working on now. It will be on the whole insurance and and annuities side of retirement income. But the other two books are, one's about reverse mortgages, and then the newer one is about all what we've been discussing, the, the 4% rule and spending from investments and that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. and so you, we, no, so Retirement Resources is the website, Wade? Uh, retirement Researcher. Researcher, okay. All right, so, uh, and, uh, so you're doing that. And... Um, but one of the other things which I find really, in, uh, as I get older, uh, Wade, I, I think there's a real benefit, and this is this is my belief, but I've been doing this a long time, is that there's a real benefit of having people having a financial coach or a financial advisor who really kind of um, keeps people on the straight and narrow, if you will. Because a lot of this stuff, I think, is um, in the absence of uh, employer-backed guarantees, i.e. a defined benefit plan, Really, uh, coaching and behavioral uh, modification, if you will, is really, really important now more than ever. What do you, what do you, what, do you, what does Mr. Dr. Fow say? Yeah, well, Vanguard has a study about that. How behavioral coaching they found within their for their customers added having that advisor helping to stay the course of the investment strategy could add about one and a half percent a year in returns or really relative to if you're making investing mistakes, it may cost you 1.5% a year on your investment returns. And that's a huge amount of money over time, and that's more than a lot of advisors charge. So it's a, a win-win there that net of any investment management fees, you're still in a better position by making better investment decisions. So there's been a lot of research in this area in recent years. David Blanchett at Morningstar has his the gamma measure, which is about the role of good financial decision-making. And he also finds that for the different factors he looked at, more than a 2.5% annual increase in investment returns relative to the counterfactual individual that makes naive decisions on, on a number of different matters related to investing for retirement. Wow, the, the, those, are, those are significant. Uh, Will, yeah, uh, you, Pierce has a question for you, Wade. Yeah, we... <clears throat> They've uh, taken up a policy of sort of nudging people into f- smart decisions. Has that worked well? Or 
Yeah. Well, that's the, the research. Well, I mean, yeah. Um, yeah. So they, that's worked well with especially 401k plans where rather than having the person have to go through the effort to sign up and opt into the plan, if you instead have them automatically signed up and then they can opt out if they don't want to participate. Because of inertia and laziness, people just go with whatever the default is. And so those efforts to nudge people into contributing and saving in their 401ks really benefited a lot from that type of behavioral finance research. The concern there, though, is just that the default savings rates were too low, often around 3%, that people just assume that's the recommended savings amount, and probably they should really be nudged into higher savings rates. But, but yeah, definitely that sort of approach can have big impacts on behavior by helping to, to overcome the behavioral mistakes that people tend to make. A lot of it's kind of simple, Wade. I mean, you, 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 saving, you know what I mean? It's just, uh, uh, I don't know, I, I like to keep it simple. A lot of it's just you, you got to save first and then invest. And I, and I think right now, this is, this is just my opinion, a lot of people just think the only way to save is in a 401k. And I, I say, oh, contraire, my, my friend, uh, uh-huh. you, know, you know. So really, I mean, you, would you agree? I mean, really, if, if Wade and uh, you're married, right? You have kids? Uh-huh. Yeah, so the thing is that if, you, if your wife wants something, why don't you say, hey, let's save some money first. Am I correct? Uh, yeah, well, I'd try to <laughs> not overspend definitely relative to income. Yeah, so His wife might be the... Might be the big earner in the family. Though. Yeah, yeah. And maybe you have an earner, Wade. Uh, or, or, but I don't know. How many kids you got? Two kids? One kid? Three kids. Three? Oh, Ooh. three. Oh, mazel tov. Well, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. And, uh, well, Wade, uh, it's uh, it's it's been a pleasure to have you here uh, uh, as a guest of the show. And uh, uh, so, again, the if you want to find out more about Wade, go to the retirement researcher, right? Am I correct? Right. Uh-huh. Or, that's the website. Or you can Google uh, you at the, uh, uh, the the American College. And uh, by the way, you know who spoke very highly, recommended me to you a couple of years ago, was Larry Barton. Do you remember Larry Barton? He used to be the president of American College. Do you remember Larry? Uh-huh. Yeah, definitely. Sure, he was president when I joined the college. Yeah, well, he was a great guy to me, and he kept me to kind of uh, asked me to keep up with, up with my research. And, and, and uh, God bless, and thank you for bringing some sanity into this whole crazy world of all this stuff. And uh, and we'll, let's do it again sometime, Wade. And great luck, on, uh, best luck to you on your speech, and let's keep in touch. Do you mind, sir, on that? Yeah, that would be great. Thanks. And I think thanks. God bless you. Listen to WSCA in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. My name is Barry James Dyke, and I'm with my sidekick, Will Pierce, and handsome Phil Kleiger. And you can find out more about me by going to barryjamesdyke.com. This has been The Economic Warrior with your host, Barry James Dyke. Broadcast live at WSCA Portsmouth Community Radio. Engineered by Phil Kleiger. If you have any questions about today's show or need an ally in conquering the battleground of finance, contact the warrior himself at barryjamesdyke.com. Who are the warriors?